the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 12. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Don't forget, please head over to culinarylibertarian.com slash podcast and find me and social media and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can support the Culinary Libertarian show through Patreon. Anything you do to help keep the lights on will be very much appreciated. And head over to Apple Podcasts and find and rate the show and please leave a positive comment. That helps move the show up and get more people listening. And the more people listening are more people cooking. With just about two weeks remaining before Christmas morning, the time crunch increases. Click over to my gifts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash gift, where I have cookbooks, cook tools, and food and drink ideas, and more for the cook or reader in your life. Could be you. Just saying culinarylibertarian.com slash gift. My guest today is David Akamoto, and we are talking about chocolate. From a tree to pod to bar and the steps involved in between. David is a baker and has experience in his area with chocolate and chocolate production. I'm going to let David speak for himself and tell you a bit about his past and how he got where he is. David? Hello. Uh, so before we get going here and talking about chocolate, I want to talk a little bit about your background, what you're doing now, and where in the world are you doing that? Okay, so I was uh, born in Japan. I lived there for a bit, and then I moved to America when I was about seven years old, roughly. Um, and then I, I basically stayed there, but I went back and forth from Japan and Hawaii. And then when I was about 23, three or 24, I moved to Seattle. And then now I'm in Thailand. So I moved a lot, um, worked in the business field, changed to the culinary field. And at the moment now I'm doing a, basically it's a wholesale and retail um, bakery, which we do mostly everything online. And we do pop-up events around mainly Thailand, but we will be doing one in Hawaii soon. Well, Thailand sounds very exciting and very exotic. I don't know too much about it except the the bad things that we see in the news. Um, I, I would imagine it's just a gorgeous place to be. So for me, Thailand is uh, is the best of both worlds when it comes to if you're going to live on this side of the world. Um, just because of the fact that if you want to go and enjoy beaches and culture, you have that option to do that. And it's only a one-hour flight from the center of Bangkok, which is, you know, the, the city and Bangkok itself. People always think of the bad when they think of Thailand and they think that, oh, well, it's a third world country. Is it safe? Um, or you hear a lot of bad negative press about, you know, prostitution and stuff. But realistically, Bangkok is more of a first world city and a third world country. It's very similar to like New York City. So you can get that big city life. But at the same time, you can get out an hour away and enjoy beaches or beautiful mountains, or if you want to go and see the farmland, which I do periodically just to check the farms when I look for the, the product that I want to use. 
um, I have that option to just take a one hour flight and I'll be, you know, in the mountains seeing coffee or I can see cocoa or, you know, vanilla. And, and there's a lot more that's just, you know, icing on the cake. All right. Well, so I brought you on. I wanted to talk about, uh, about chocolate. So um, give me a brief explanation of how it is that cocoa beans are turned into chocolate. Okay. So... Cocoa beans itself, it's a very long process to produce from basically the bean all the way to the bar, which most people don't realize. And it's very labor intensive. Uh, mostly everything is done by, you know, machines, but overlooked by hand and people. Um, so like, for instance, most of your chocolate, uh, the cocoa plants and the beans are going to be grown in mainly in Africa and particularly in Ghana. And then you do have some parts of Asia that's popping up, mainly in Bali. Thailand's another one that's coming up, and Vietnam. Um, and also, so like in the recent years that's happened, before that it was mainly in Africa. So most cocoa's grown normally um, in plants near, in, in little farmlands, basically, where a lot of companies will buy from the farmers itself. And so they're mainly on these little farms that little farm families run and then they sell the beans to these huge, you know, mass produced companies that you see like, you know, Hershey's. And then you have these bigger Dalhorna and Calibo, which are you know, cacao berry, just big companies itself. So, I mean, it takes a long time, roughly takes about three or four years before the actual plant can grow the bean itself. And then you need to have it pollinated before it can actually grow the bean. So the problem with the pollination is that it's very difficult for insects to, to, to go through and actually pollinate it. So today's world, a lot of the pollination is done by the farmers by hand. Wow. And when they've pollinated by hand, only about, let's say in one plant, about 10,000 flowers actually bloom. And it takes only about 20 or 30 of those plants to actually successfully get pollinated. So it's very difficult in that sense because a lot of them do die in the process of doing it um, in that one plant itself. So the pod itself uh, contains about 40 seeds, which are the cocoa bean. Um, and one tree makes about two pounds or in my part of the world, 0.9 kg of chocolate per tree. So, I mean, you're thinking about a huge tree that's only going to make a very small amount. Um, so like roughly... There's two harvests a year. Um, they harvest about four to six months where you can actually harvest the, the, the cocoa itself, the fruit. And what you're going to do from there, the main harvests usually start around October to January, which is very similar to coffee. A coffee, normally the harvest starts around October also. And then you have a small yield that produces in like June, July. Um, once you harvest the bean itself, that's when you have to ferment the bean. So... It's very labor intensive again with farmers. Um, basically what's gonna, gonna happen is the farmer has to crack open the, the cocoa pod, which actually has the beans inside, which you split up and you take it out and it's a very slimy pulp um, type substance. So it's very similar to if you open up, let's say a passion fruit, where you have the fruit and you have the seeds all mixed within. Um, that's kind of what a cocoa bean or pod and the beans inside look like. So what you're going to do is you're going to scrape them all out, taking out 
the rotten ones and the ones that already sprouted. If any of them sprouted inside, you want to take them out because it's going to leave a really bad taste. And then you're going to let it sit and you're going to let it ferment. Um, so what's going to happen is this fermentation takes about five to eight days. And what you're going to do is after the first day of fermentation, the first, first or second day, you're going to want to kind of put in like something where you can drain the excess underneath. So coolers usually work very well. Um, and what happens is they take the, the cocoa juice or the cacao juice out of the cooler before they add basically vinegar with mother in it. Um, and that's what's going to speed up the fermentation process. And that, to me personally, the cacao juice is like a gem. It's like the oyster in a turkey that gets left behind. And they always throw away the, that oyster, which is so delicious. That cacao juice is so good. Um, it's so sweet. It's so flavorful. And it's a shame that they don't sell it on the market or it's hard to get. But if you go to the actual farm, you have the option to actually drink it there before they add the vinegar because that's just going to ruin the taste. So after that's done with the fermentation process, basically, you know, five to eight days, um, what you're going to do then is you're going to remove it and you're going to go to the, the drying process, basically. So when you do the drying process, there's two ways of doing it. Some places use big machines like ovens in a sense, and some actually just let it bake out in the sun, depending on how hot it can be. And then once it's dried, which takes about another five to 12 days, give or take, uh, you don't want, you want to continuously keep turning it so that it evenly dries. You're going to reduce the moisture of the bean itself. So you're going to go from your hundred percent amount. It's going to reduce to about 8% in the weight itself. So you're going to lose 92% of your weight, basically just doing that whole process. Um, and then from there, you have to break the bean itself. And there's going to be these things inside, which you're called chocolate nibs. It's the purest form of chocolate. And to separate the actual shell from the seed, what you're going to do is you, there, there's, a, there's a wind tunnel system that they use, or you can actually just use a fan if you're outdoor because the seed itself, it's like paper thin and it'll fly away and the nibs will actually sit and stay. And then, so when you get these nibs, which have very deep flavors and they're bitter and nutty. And the fermentation process allowed the chocolate as we know it, the, the, the smell and the taste to actually build. That's when you go into your crushing process where you put it through a, basically a stone grinder um, where most companies use. And what happens is this stone grinder is going to go for about two to three days. Um, the process, which is called conching. Um, and what that is, is what it's going to do is it's going to smoothen out the chocolate. Because if you've ever eaten a piece of chocolate and it tastes, it's not silky smooth and it's grainy, it wasn't ground properly. And what's going to happen when it grinds is it's going to squeeze out the cocoa butter. And that's what your chocolate mass is. Your, your cocoa butter split out with, you know, cocoa powder and the chocolate itself. And then from that, after all that time, then you go into the, the process of, okay, now we're going to start adding what we want to add. If we're going to add sugar to the chocolate, uh, milk or milk powder, cocoa butter to actually make our bar. So there's a very long process 
Sorry, it took a long time to explain, but that's all right. That's the shortest term I can make it without it going on and on. Well, that's funny. Though, what I wanted was just it. It does take a long time. It is a time and labor intensive process, um, but that's that's what I you answered what I asked you to answer. One thing I didn't know when I found a surprise was the hand pollination of the flowers. It reminded me of the uh, vanilla farmers in Madagascar who are hand pollinating the beans. Yes, that that is correct. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, okay, so we've got our, our cocoa mass and our cocoa butter. They've all been... Uh, they're in the vat. They're being mixed. We've got the sugar and all the everything's in. So I go to the store and I see on the shelf in my local grocery store all these different bars of chocolate. Some of them say 72. Some of them say 89%. Um, I know what it means when they've got almonds and flavoring inside. I can get that part. That's self-explanatory. All these terms bittersweet, semi-sweet, milk chocolate, couverture, and these percentages, can you clear that mess up a little bit? What does all that mean? Sure. Um, so two parts, basically. Um, what chocolate means when it gives you a percentage uh, is the bar by the weight that's made by the cocoa itself. So basically what that's going to be is if you see something that has 70%, 70% is going to be the pure chocolate itself which could be the cocoa and also the cocoa butter. But at the same time, when you think about it, 30%, what is that 30% that's, that equals that 100%? Well, the 30% most of the time is sugar. So you have to really think about it. The higher percentage of the cocoa you're getting, the less sugar you're going to have. So if you see something that says 30% cocoa, you're going to have a influx of a sugar rush. <laughs> um, when it comes down to semi-sweet and bittersweet, uh, basically legally uh, in the U.S. and most parts of the world, if you do semi-sweet or bittersweet, it legally has to have about 35% pure chocolate. Um, and then with semi-sweet, you have cocoa butter and sugar mixed with it. And bittersweet is just going to be your, your pure chocolate with sugar added to it. That gives it that little bit of acidity and um, fruitiness, which mostly... When you talk about coffee and chocolate, the bean itself, when it's done, if you eat 100% pure chocolate, it's not going to be sweet like most people think. It's going to be, it's going to have that acidity. You're going to have the fruity, the nutty flavors. And that's what you're really going to taste from the bean. And true chocolate connoisseurs will actually be able to tell the difference. When you taste it, the average person will not find it pleasant um, because 100% pure chocolate is very bitter um but there are if you take it in small ounces and you're eating it with let's say coffee or something it's very pleasant for like a small snack you wouldn't eat a whole chocolate bar that's 100 percent. that would just be overkill um and then when you go down to coverture chocolate and so there's really two categories when you talk about chocolate and a lot of people in the uh, culinary world will call it real chocolate and and basically fake chocolate where you have Coverture chocolate, which is considered real chocolate, and then compound chocolate, which is considered fake chocolate. Um, compound chocolate is basically what happens is it's mixed with vegetable oil instead of cocoa butter. It's a cheaper alternative to make the chocolate. And the benefit with it when they do combine vegetable oil is as a higher heat um, 
sensitivity so it's harder to burn where cocoa butter itself can burn very easily so you have to process it when melting correctly if not what's going to happen is you're going to lose the creaminess you're going to lose that snap that everyone loves in a chocolate bar and the shine um it's going to basically ruin the texture and the flavor of the chocolate if you don't so with compound chocolate you can just throw it in a microwave or just right on the pan and melt it and not have to worry and 99% of people will not be able to tell the difference in the taste unless you put it next to each other. If I give you a piece of coverture and a piece of compound at the same percentage and you eat it, it the taste is worlds different. And 10 out of 10, you'll take the coverture over the compound any day. Hmm. So without getting into naming names, if I went into the grocery store and I'm going to go buy a bag of chips for cookies... There's almost a 100% chance that the fat in that, in those chocolate chips, is possibly cocoa butter, but almost certainly some portion of vegetable fat. Yes. Whereas on the other side of the aisle, in those little uh, maybe 100 gram or two and a half ounce bars with the fancy sounding European names, there's a I, I have a peace of mind that I have a better chance of getting closer to real chocolate because it probably has, if not all, cocoa butter, a higher ratio of cocoa butter than vegetable fat. Yes, that, that's correct. Um, when you go into a store nowadays, a lot of chocolate chips, for instance, everyone loves to make cookies. Chocolate chips, I'm going to say mostly every brand that sells chocolate chips are going to use compound chips because it's cheap. And you're not going to be able to tell the difference when you eat a cookie that's filled with, let's say, sugar and, and if you use very good butter. Um, but that being said, like, it does make a difference. I highly recommend Coverture chocolate just because it does cost more. But it, the taste, I mean, it's, it's worth it. It's like getting a very nice piece of steak, a nice filet. And then say you got something from Japan, like a Wagyu Kobe and then you went and you just like for instance in Thailand they don't have great beef so if you went in Thailand and you bought a cut here it's world's difference it's it's you can't compare you really can't you mentioned about the snap and everybody knows you even even something like the Hershey's bar it has that very satisfying snap when you pop yes. it and I know that means uh, that the chocolate has been tempered and we always sort of laughed when we say the chocolate lost its temper. Oh, you think the chocolate lost its temper? You're she the chef. Um, so tell me what, tell me about the tempering process. How do you do it? And sort of the, we already know now what the advantage is that you get to snap, but is there more to it than just that? Yeah. So tempering itself, um, it improves the consistency and the durability and the hardness um, of the chocolate itself. And what it is, is it's basically heating and cooling in multiple stages. And it's easier said, like when I explain, it's going to sound very difficult, but it's very easy if you have a temperature gauge while you do this process. Um, what you're going to do is you want to put the chocolate at a high enough temperature where the crystals inside the chocolate and the cocoa butter break down, which is roughly around 110 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And basically what happens is that's when chocolate gets fully melted, but not at scorched temperature where you burn it. 
And then what you're going to do is you want to cool the temperature down to 82 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's when the crystals start to form and basically build that snap in that chocolate bar itself. And what you want to do is you want to raise it back to 90 degrees. So what most pastry chefs and bakers and chocolatiers that temp chocolate, what they'll do is they'll melt their, their say you have um, one pound of chocolate, you'll melt that one pound of chocolate. And what you'll do is you'll put 80% of that one pound of chocolate on, usually it's a marble table and some people use stainless, but marble is better um, just because it stays at a cool temperature. And what you'll do is you'll see them with like a bench scraper, uh, like painters use, to move the chocolate around. And they're bending and molding the chocolate as they go. And what they're going to do is when that temperature starts to drop down to 82 degrees, they're going to add the extra 20% of that chocolate back on the chocolate on top to raise it back to that 90 degrees. Um, and that's, that's, you know, the easiest way of explaining how they, they temper chocolate itself. Um, and if you melt it properly, it, it, it makes a difference. Um, you get that snap. You get the shine that looks beautiful. The taste, uh, you, don't, you don't ruin the taste. Because, like, for instance, some people, when they do, uh, when they temp chocolate, they burn the chocolate. Because there's very simple techniques like a bain-marie, which it's a water bath. It's, uh, you use a pot with water inside, and then you put a glass uh, bowl on top of it. You make sure the water doesn't touch and you kind of melt the chocolate slowly in that sense. Um, so there are differences on how to um, temp chocolate, but that's the most simplest, and most people will be able to do it that way. I have to tell you, I have never successfully tempered chocolate on a table. I never learned how to do it the right way. Uh, I always used either the really old-fashioned uh, bowl on the, on the double boiler, and I have a chocolate tempering thermometer. It's got a, it's about a foot long, but a very, very narrow range. Uh, or we used to have a small tabletop tempering machine, which had a light bulb, an incandescent light bulb, which puts out a tremendous amount of heat. Uh, and then uh, special thermometers to measure how high it got and to cool it down. And the machine was awesome because we made a lot of um, a lot of chocolate candies with the uh, um, the plastic molds. You fill them and then put your caramel inside or whatever you got, and then top it off for uh, miniardies. But I, I can <laughs> I know how hard it can be. So let me ask you: since you brought it up, if you do it right, it's fabulous. If you do it wrong, so two things I know, but I want you to explain about it. If you do it wrong, nothing actually happens to the chocolate. It just might not have the texture you want, but there's also that other thing, which is that that little white fuzzy stuff. Tell me about that. Okay, so that white fuzzy stuff that looks like a dust like substance. Um, yeah. it's what happens when chocolate blooms, and basically what happens is when moisture contacts the chocolate itself. So most of the time, I've seen people do this: is they take their chocolate bar and they throw it in a fridge. And I always tell them not to do that. Um, it's better to just keep it in a dark area in an airtight container. Um, but what you're doing is you're messing with the temperature and it's improperly being stored. So it's not harmful to eat when you see it. It's just very unpleasant to see. Um, and I do recommend people, if you do have a problem seeing it and eating it, the easiest way to do it is just make it into a fondue. And eat it like that because the color will dissipate and you can just dip whatever you want and eat it with the chocolate. 
Oh, that's an excellent idea. <laughs> so let's go back to our grocery store for a minute. So the home baker, she or he walks into the store and they're looking at these bars of chocolate with all this information on there. So they've listened to us tell them this, these percentages mean uh, the higher the number, the more bitterness and less sugar in your chocolate bar. But this person wants 72 and they're fresh out of 72. And this person doesn't really know what to do. Are these things interchangeable? How, how does the home baker sort of sort this out if there's a substitution necessary? When you look at percentages with chocolate itself, um, like I said earlier, it's really the sugar content that's added to it. So you're going to get that sweetness. Um, you know, milk, white, dark chocolate, they're, they're all going to taste different just because milk chocolate has milk mixed in with it. Dark does not. And then, you know, white is, is different. Uh, but basically what happens is what I tell people, the best chocolate to bake with is something that you enjoy eating. Because if you can enjoy and eat it by itself, self-standing, and you add it to something, it's going to make your pastry taste a lot better to you personally. Um, if you're trying to sell it on like a commercial aspect or, you know, sell it to people, uh, the recipe itself actually works very well. Um, and you should find as close as possible to the percentages that you're looking for in that sense, because you when, when you look 70% dark chocolate, every 70% dark chocolate, depending on per brand, they're all going to taste different. Um, so if you have a 70% from one brand and 70% from another brand, they're not certainly going to taste the same. Um, so the sourness is going to be different. The bitterness, the floral flavors that you get from itself in the dark chocolate. Milk chocolate is, is very easy compared to it. So milk chocolate, you can really go with any um, just because a lot of sugar is added to it and, and milk powder usually. Um, so what I would say is if you enjoy eating that chocolate bar, I would use that chocolate in whatever you want to make with it. That's a good, it's, it's a good advice. Um, I want to ask you something. Now, there's no way for the consumer buying any product in the grocery store to know the first thing about the provenance of the beans in the chocolate bar, in the packet, and in the shelf, in any store, anywhere. But I have an idea that there probably is such a thing as artisanal chocolate. And I would imagine there are a wide variety of, well, my biology nomenclature is going <laughs> to fail me here, but either species, varieties of cocoa trees. So from one tree to the next tree to the next tree, just like fish, they're, yeah, well, they all have mostly fins and gills and they swim in the water, but there's also lots of difference. Is that the same? I know that's with coffee. Is it the same with cocoa trees that different kinds of trees are going to give you vastly different kinds of chocolate? And then how do you get them? Where are they? So most plantations use forcetero plants just because the chance of them being um, getting any type of bacteria or virus or anything in the tree and killing the tree is very slim. And the amount of yield that they make has the highest uh, 
highest, I guess, fruit. So I'm going to say when you're looking at nine out of 10 farms, majority will use that plant itself. There are two other species, uh, but I don't remember the name off the top of my head uh, that people do use. And those are considered a higher end quality type of bean. And those higher end type of quality beans gives a better tasting chocolate. But that being said, the process behind it of actually getting it from bean to bar, if it's not done properly, like if a regular person gets the best bean and doesn't do it properly compared to you can get the lowest quality bean and do it properly, that tastes a lot better. So it's not just the bean itself. It's the process and the technique behind making the chocolate is what's going to make it outstanding. So there are artisan chocolate makers all over the world. Uh, even in Thailand, they're starting to come up within the last couple of years. And there's two that outshine probably the 10 that are out there right now, um, which do it properly, get the bean and and everything is perfect when it. Now, that being said, they're still new and they're still learning. So when you compare it to the big dogs who have been doing it for, you know, 100 years now, it, it's not on par yet with them. Just because they have the technology, the tooling where these, these people that are doing it, you know, out of love for chocolate, they're still slowly learning and slow and, and you know, they don't have all the machinery. So they're you know, trucking around slowly. <laughs> Slow and steady right. wins the race. David, let's take a moment for a word from one of my affiliates. Chocolate, chocolate everywhere and not a piece to eat. That's an easy fix with one of the world's premier chocolatiers, The Chocolat. The Chocolat is a French chocolatier and they ship worldwide. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash five tips. For all of their Christmas deals, that's culinarylibertarian.com slash the numeral 5-T-I-P-S. So you brought up a few names before, which I'm familiar with in the in the food world. Um, Cocoa Berry and Calibo, um, they are, I think, probably the benchmark of commercially available chocolate. Uh, and you're going to pay for that. Um do you think that they're using these rarer beans or are they still using the same ones? No, they're using the same ones. They're not using the rare ones. Yeah. Just because, yeah, just because, yeah, just because the amount of yield that they need to produce, because there's a saying that in 50 years, chocolate is no longer going to be around. It's going to be one of the things that becomes extinct because of the fact that um, deforestation is happening. And not only that is, the amount of chocolate that is consumed within the whole world, we can't meet up the demand of the amount that it's produced. So unless we start planting more coffee, or not coffee, choc chocolate plants, cocoa plants, it's um, it's not going to be possible. And and that's that's the biggest problem where it comes down to. So the benefit with these big dog uh, players they do contribute back to the community, which I, I do appreciate. Like Calibo, for instance, they do donate money to sustain the earth, pay the farmers to help them live better lives, educate them. Um, uh, women dominance, where basically they will give money for to to lift up because in those parts of the world, men is first and women are 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 lower. It's a, a tier scale, and they want to make empowerment of women so that 
you know, so they give that type of entitlement. They they do, you know, child abuse is a huge issue there too. So they donate all this money to help the farmers out and also the land and the development of the chocolate itself. So that's a good thing that they're going that way because they can see it coming. Um, and so they want to help out as much as they can, especially because they are a business. So if, you know, chocolate runs out, they're going to go out of business too. But Well, and, and and that's a perfect example of, and this will drive, well, there's a category of people who will be maddened by this, but that's the market fixing yes. the problem. It doesn't need the state. The big company recognizes I need the resource to stay in business. So voluntary action to make sure that they're in business is that I'm fine. Perfect. Good. I love it. Uh, it's, when, it's when governments get involved that things go wacky. And while it's outside the scope of, of what we're talking about, uh, Madagascar has a lot to show about why governments ought to s- stay where they are and not get involved in things they yeah. don't know about. Vanilla is another thing that's uh, very difficult but, to, you know, that that's will probably run out too if if things don't get done. <laughs> nah, the market will the market will yeah. find a solution. Just wait, it'll work. Um, well, why, so just just let's let's drop names a little bit. In your okay. opinion. Um, what do you think are some? We've already mentioned two, uh, Calibo and Cocoberry. What else do you think that people can find would be a superior Belgian chocolate? And I'm picking on Belgium specifically because they seem to have this just worldwide reputation for being one of the best. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's the Swiss. Maybe um, maybe it's somebody else. I didn't think about Belgian chocolate is very good. Um, don't don't get me wrong. It's very good, and they they're superior in chocolate truffles. I mean, they invented it. So when you're looking for like a chocolate truffle, when you go to a shop, like I guess Godiva would be one of them. You could go there by par. They will be the best um, as far as your truffle goes. Eating chocolate, depending on what type of chocolate you want to eat. If you love milk chocolate, I would go for Lindt, uh, just because they make the best milk chocolate. Uh, they have a uh, technique that they have refined within their processing of how they invented their milk chocolate and how they process it, where it makes it worlds apart. And I mean, and the Swiss eat more milk chocolate than anyone per capita in the world. So they know what they're doing. <laughs> when it comes to dark chocolate, though, me personally, and, you know, uh, it would actually either be French or I think I would do French or Belgian, depending on the two, uh, because of the fact that, so for instance, Calibo is uh, is your Belgian and Valhorna is your French. They both are amazing chocolate brands. They're the superior in the market when it comes to commercial chocolate, just because of their techniques and how long they've been around. Um, Lint would be my milk chocolate source to go. Calibo and Valhorna would be the two I would go for for your dark chocolate per se um and i'm not a huge white chocolate fan so i'm not sure where i would go with that um and then there's a new chocolate i'm not sure if you know about it but there's a new uh ruby chocolate that was discovered which is a pink like substance i've heard of it yeah so that that's a lot of people think that there's food coloring added to it or something added to you know boost that that flavor it tastes more fruity and acidic um that's actually the the color is naturally so 
there, you have four types of chocolate now where you can think of. So you have to think of a a white chocolate that has more nutty bitterness and fruity taste when you go where they're with the ruby. Well, let's talk about white chocolate for a minute because I I know a little bit, I know a little bit about it and I know at least as much that it isn't actually chocolate and I think in most places it can't legally be called chocolate. So what's going on with white chocolate? So white chocolate is basically cocoa butter that's being made with it. So the cocoa butter itself is more of a white yellowish color. Um, it's more white. It's got a pale hint of yellow in it. Um, so you're not going to use like cocoa powder or the cocoa nib itself to give it that dark color. So realistically, you're just using the cocoa butter itself to give the smell and the taste of the chocolate. And that's the difference between your milk and dark chocolate, where you're mixing cocoa butter with cocoa nibs or cocoa powder, or instead of just using the cocoa butter by itself. So for the white chocolate, you've got cocoa butter, uh, flavoring, probably vanilla, some emulsifiers, yes. uh, less less a thin of a kind, sugar. What am I missing? Some people use lectogen. It's a it's 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 basically a cheap type of. Um, oil it's kind of similar to like the vegetable oil but they'll use the um the cocoa butter sugar vanilla for flavoring and that's basically it what you use for your white chocolate itself um when you go dark chocolate you're going to either use cocoa butter or i mean cocoa powder or the uh chocolate liqueur which is your your grounded up you know cocoa nibs yeah and then you can also add a little bit of milk for your white chocolate just to give it that creaminess. Oh, right. Huh. Would you use milk or would you use milk powder? Um, depending on who you want, who was making it, most places we use milk powder just because it has a longer shelf life where milk itself will go bad pretty quickly. Oh, well, good point. I was, I was thinking more about um, compatibility of, of fat and liquid, but you, you, make, a, you make a good point. Um, all right, so tell me a little, you mentioned to me before, and you mentioned it now, that there are some people in Thailand who are working with chocolate. So tell me about this. This is exciting to me because I didn't know Thailand was doing chocolate. So tell me about Thai chocolate. So I've, there's about 10 different uh, places that are making chocolate right now in Thailand. It's it's kind of blown up within the last year or so um, where more people are doing it. Uh so just to name names, like Kadkoa is is one of them that's very well known. Uh, they do a bean-to-bar chocolate cafe. So their cafe is, they sell coffee, but their mainly focus is chocolate. So you, you can get your hot cocos or you can buy your chocolate bars from them. Um, and it's a bean-to-bar chocolate cafe is what it comes down to. And then the other one is Sabar um, or Sabah. I'm probably saying it wrong. And that's another chocolate company that they also, it's you know, bean to bar done locally here. And they only sell it in Thailand right now. I, I don't know of any of them that they sell internationally. And I could be wrong because I'm not sure about, I, I don't really talk to them as much. Um, I do talk to Shabab because we do incorporate uh, their chocolates in my products when we do um, collab projects together. But overall, they're not on par with the big dogs yet, but they're, they're getting there. And the benefit with Thailand that a lot of people don't know is a lot of the farms are part of the royal project. 
And basically the Royal project is funded by the, you know, the, the King and the, and the queen. And they, um, they donate all this money to these farmers to develop and see the science behind it and what actually makes sense and what can actually grow in Thailand in the different, you know, mountainous areas uh, that can actually benefit the farmers and the hill tribes, which is the Akka tribe mainly in uh, Chiang Rai and Doi Chang, where a lot of the coffee is very well known throughout the world uh, from Thailand is from Doi Chang. So when I went to this farm about four months ago and I do a lot of my coffee um, purchases there, I go to the farm and I, I do everything I look. I noticed that one of the farms that I visited had about 300 to 400 cocoa plants that were planted. And it's going to take, you know, four four years roughly for it to start to, to fruit and grow. But they just started it about a year ago. And I noticed they cleared out a whole patch of uh, where they were growing um, avocado and pineapple. And they cleared it out and they planted this because they want to do chocolate. And they want to be able to, you know, go mainstream with it. Uh, so as far as chocolate goes, they're they're working slowly. Um, and in time with the Royal project and with the money that's being donated, they are developing different types of, you know, agriculture that they wouldn't never normally be able to access. Well, that's a pretty strong commitment to a future in chocolate to rip up uh, pineapples and avocados. Yeah. Especially when avocado takes so long. I understand the pineapple aspect just because, if you come to Thailand and you look at the farm, almost every farm sells pineapples and it's overwhelming. And when I talk to the farmers and I ask them about the pineapples and why they're, they're stopped growing and selling them, well, they basically, because they're overrun now, those parts of the pineapple, they say they sell less than a bot. And if you do the conversion rate, 30 bot, Thai bot equals, or 32 right now, depending on the currency exchange rate, 32 Thai baht equals $1. So if it's less than one baht for one pineapple when they sell it, they're not making any money off of it. So it, it makes sense for them to pull the pineapples up. Not sure about the avocados. I think the avocado market it does very well. But I know a lot of these coffee plantations grow many different types of, of plants because not only to feed themselves um, and they also sell to make extra money meat, a lot of plants that grow near other plants, they develop these natural flavors. And that's why when you talk about chocolate and you talk about coffee, those two, no matter what farm you get it from, they will never taste 100% identical. Because depending on what's around and what's growing around, that's the, the flavors and the profile you're going to get off of the bean itself. I'm just curious from my own knowledge, and I don't know the answer to this. As the tree matures, does the cocoa pod flavor increase over the course of years from the same tree? So when, when the flavoring of the cocoa itself develops when the fermentation process happens. So if you really want to increase the flavor of the, the chocolate itself, you would ferment it longer. So it's not necessarily it being planted and letting it stay because it, it can rot if it stays too long. But when you ferment it, that's when you develop the aroma and the flavor of the chocolate itself. So it's mainly the fermentation process over the growth. 
So a tree that is viably producing cocoa pods after five years, that tree in 50 years will be making functionally the same cocoa pods. It's entirely the skill of the people doing the fermenting, which makes or breaks the quality of the chocolate. Yes, and that also depends if the, the cocoa plant itself is even producing for that long, because a lot of plants normally will produce for about 10 years to 15 years, and then you have to start all over again. Yeah, like for instance, like a coffee plant, for instance, they'll grow for about five years, and then they'll, they'll basically graph it and re regrow a brand new one. So there's, you have to keep a certain amount of land to grow new plants, and at the same time produce so you're not, you know, stagnant, like, oh, we can't produce for four years. Okay, well, that I didn't know. That's fascinating stuff. So the obviously in Thailand, the, the Thai are the market for the chocolate. Do you have a sense of who the chocolatiers in Thailand wish to market to? Do they want to stay uh, in Thailand, in Asia? Do they want to conquer the world? Do you have any sense? Well, when I when I talked to the owner Shabar, he um he told me he wants to go internationally. I mean that that's almost everyone's dream. But at the same time, they don't want to grow so rapidly like these commercial companies where they lose the the soul of oh, their yeah. company right. basically. Uh, so yeah, so they want to sell internationally, but probably more like boutique style where they'll they only sell to like certain places. They're not going to go full out where you see it in every grocery store, but they're. Yeah, but their goal is, you know, Japan is up there, America is up there, um, you know, most of the Western countries, Australia, Europe, they're, and China, obviously. Those are probably the, the big countries that they want to get into. Um, this is just a silly question. So let's say in my house, let's in, I've got cocoa butter, I've got powdered milk, sugar, vanilla extract, and cocoa powder. Can I make my own chocolate? You can make your own chocolate, but it will not taste anything like chocolate that you get at the store just because you wouldn't have the right tools. Right. So I have the ingredients. What I'm missing is the technology to put all this together and to mix it for the 48 hours to get that smoothness. Yes, that, that would be the biggest problem. Because what the stone grinder does is it's a heating element while it grinds. So what happens is the longer it grinds, the thinner and thinner and thinner it gets. So that that's why you keep it in. So the longer you keep it in that thing, the the thinner the actual cocoa nibs get and becomes liquefied. So you need that stone grinder is probably the most key uh, out of out of anything. Huh. All right. Well, I want to move on to my last segment, and if you listen to the last episode, you know what's coming. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they uh, if they get Bravo TV in Thailand. Uh, there was a, a man named James Lipton who is or will be retiring from the TV show The Actors Studio. Uh, ended all of his interviews with a series of questions inspired to him by Bernard Pivot. Well, he inspired me. Uh, with a few questions of my own, which are mostly food-related, but uh, they don't have to be. Uh, so the first one is, what is your favorite food? Oh, that one's hard. I love to eat. <laughs> um, okay, so my favorite food by far is uh, gunchiam, which is a cured, salted, sweet, spicy type of sausage that they sell in Thailand. 
Um, and it's, it's so hard to compare to anything in the States that I've had. Uh, but they mix it with like, you know, fried rice or you can eat it by itself. And it's not very healthy, but it's, it's very delicious. Uh, and that's my, my favorite thing to eat on this side of the, the world. If you were talking about in America, if, if I was in America, what my favorite thing would do would just be at steak. Oh, well, okay. I think you get a lot of, you'll have a lot of fans of that. Uh, David, what is your least favorite food? My least favorite food by far would be, so in Thailand, they sell somtam, which is papaya salad, and I love it. I love it. And then they use fish sauce, which is nampla, which I also love. And it's like fermented fish sauce, so it smells really bad. But there are people that add this crab in their dish and it's raw and the smell from it and the taste i i that's the the least favorite thing that i would like to eat um i can i that I, i've had the papaya salad and i love a good fermented fish sauce but i, I can follow you on that one I, I would tend to agree what what gets you excited um baking gets me excited not like Baking when, because I, I do it for work, but when I get in the mode where I get to create, it's my stress reliever. I'm in the zone. I get to control what I want to develop and create. So I love baking and making new things. Oh, now you're talking my language. What turned you off? Negative people. I really get turned off by negative people. I understand people have bad days and there's some negativity, but there are people that talk negative 100% of the time. And I... I I really try to avoid myself from it because I'm a very happy guy and I love to, you know, make people happy. I, I think anyone in the food industry, at the end of the day, they're in the food industry because they enjoy and like people regardless of what they say. It's because you are giving them food and food is a cultural thing where people are with family. It's a very enjoyable thing. You know, you, you spend time with family, you, you enjoy the food. It, it puts smiles on people's faces. So I love to be a happy person. So I try to avoid being negative. Fair enough. What sound do you love? I love the sound of nature. Uh, where I live in Thailand, I get that beautiful sound where everything is quiet. You hear the birds, the insects, the reptiles here. <laughs> we get every, basically every type of reptile here. Um, but I just love the sound of nature. Um, and being away from the big city. I'm, I'm about a 12-hour drive to Bangkok, uh, an hour flight from Bangkok. I'm right at the border of Laos. Uh, and two hours away from Vietnam in Thailand. And I have this gorgeous view of Laos, these rolling mountains on the river. And just, I'm away from everything. And I just, I love, you know, at night, just, you can hear everything. It sounds spectacular. I would highly recommend people to visit so the city I live in is called Nakampanom. Uh, it's not very well advertised, but I would highly recommend if people come to Thailand to take the effort to take the flight. And it's only $30 to fly from the airport uh, to come and visit this area because it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's, if you want to really experience real Thailand and real Thai culture, this is one of the cities to come to. Well, I think I can anticipate the answer to this one. What sound do you hate? <laughs> Traffic. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. And then the, the coup de grace, what is your favorite food indulgence? Oh, it would be coffee. 
Yeah, I um, and it's not even food. That's the funny thing. Like, and if it were, if you're talking about something, it'd be ice cream. Uh, those those two things. Like coffee, I drink a ridiculous amount a day, and ice cream, I eat way too many times than I should. <laughs> I think everybody who eats ice cream would probably agree with that sentiment. It's a good thing I work out every day because if I didn't work out every day, I'd be huge. So the thing is, in with Thailand, 7-Eleven is amazing. Like when I'm in the states, I'm so upset on how 7-Eleven is, uh, just because I know what it can be. When you go to Japan and you go to Thailand, those two places have the best 7-Eleven in the world. I mean, they have everything you can think of, everything you would need. Like in the middle of the night, if you woke up, you're like, "Oh my god, I need this." Well, 7-Eleven has it, and then they also have amazing food. Like you can get ramen. You, can, I got. Bacon wrapped like sauce, like it's it's insane. The food quality they have: fish burgers, regular burgers. They have uh, all types of sandwiches, all types of drinks. I, I can get high quality chocolate there if I really wanted to, you know. So um, I want laundry detergent. I can get it there. And there's a, there's newer Seven Elevens that open that they have uh, fresh baked pastries which are mind-blowing, made on the spot. Like they have a bakery built in. I'm like, how? <laughs> David, I am pretty sure there is nobody who is listening to this in America who has any idea what you're talking about. Because <laughs> 7-Elevens here are not that. I, I'm, I'm not going to get in trouble with them. But <laughs> You get gas, right? That's about it. Yeah, it, it, if you go to Japan or you go to... Um, Thailand and you go into 7-Eleven, you, you'll, you'll be in shock on how well what's there. I mean, they have so many things. It's, it's mind blowing and it's, it's so good. Like they have, so like for instance, ice cream, I go there all the time when I drive past and I buy ice cream from them and they have very high quality, like they have gelato ice cream, which they have like a, a pistachio gelato ice cream in there. And then they have like Magnum is like a, a brand that I'm not sure if they're, I'm pretty sure they're in the States, um, but they have Magnum ice cream, which is Belgian chocolate covered ice cream. Like they have very high quality items in there too. Not just your, your plain Jane stuff. Um, and the fresh baked croissants that you can get at some of the 7-Elevens here is it's so good. I'm like, I feel like I'm at like a real bakery and it's very inexpensive. Like I, I, I take pictures and show my friends like, Hey, look what I bought for like three bucks. And they're like, you have two big, huge bags full of stuff. I'm like, if I spent three bucks at 7-Eleven here, I'd get like a drink and maybe a hot dog. <laughs> no, <laughs> one or the other. Pick, pick one. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's really what I had for you. I, I just so I wanted to, I know chocolate is a thing that we can make a career out of. And that wasn't the purpose of today. Um, I just wanted to get some basic information out there because I, I learned a few things and I know a fair amount about chocolate. So I'm pretty sure there are lots of people who would appreciate being demystified and that's exactly what we did today. So thank you very much for that. Uh, you did mention uh, coffee to me before, so maybe we'll get you back on and we'll talk about coffee. Yeah, it sounds good. Um, I go to the, the farms and the plantations and I help them pick beans uh, every once in a while uh, when the harvest is coming. Just I enjoy going up into the mountains and helping the Aka families out. Um, and then they they produce mostly anywhere in Thailand that you check. Uh, if it says coffee from Thailand, 
nine out of ten, it will be from Doichang, just because the elevation and the arabica beans that they use themselves are worlds apart from a lot of the other plants that, because robusta uh, plants um, aren't as good as arabica plants, um, so they have everything down to science there. And they've been doing it for so long just because Thailand used to be the biggest exporter of opium, which people don't know. Um, and to go away from that, uh, you know, the, the country itself and the king said, we need to get away from selling drugs and we need to do something that can be profitable for the farmers so they won't keep growing it. So what happened is they converted to coffee and they've been doing coffee for years and years now and that's a lot more profitable for them and they're getting world recognition for it too. All right, well again, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. All right, folks, that's going to do it. You can find the show notes page for today's episode at culinarylibertarian.com slash 12. Find David's Facebook page at facebook.com slash davidsoftcookies, all one word. You are going to want to check out these cookies. These are some amazing cookies. And just so you know, the conversion rate of the 65 is about two bucks. Also follow David on Instagram at davidsoftcookies. And you can also find the affiliate banners for some of the chocolates that David named uh, on the show notes page, com slash 12.